This is a story about David and Absalom. Surely you've heard about Absalom. From head to toe, the most beautiful man in all of Israel. But at this moment, David and Absalom are estranged. David's oldest son, Amnon, is dead. And even though Amnon was responsible for his own death and destruction, David blamed Absalom. And when Absalom realized this, and he realized he wasn't safe, he gathered his family and he fled to the land of Geshur, where he lived for three years in exile until Joab, one of David's commanders, realized that David's anger was starting to soften. And he had David call Absalom back from Geshur. But when Absalom entered the city, David didn't run out to meet him because even though his fury had started to subside, he was not yet ready to forgive. That took another two years. But eventually, David forgave his son, welcomed him back into the palace, embraced him, kissed him, declared that this was his beloved son. And in some stories, this is the part where you would say, and they lived happily ever after. But this is a different story from a different book. Absalom started riding around in a chariot, which was unique because usually the sons of the king would ride around on mules. But Absalom, he considered himself special. But the thing with a chariot is that if you're driving a chariot in a crowded city and you get stuck behind a mule, or a group of poor people, you look ridiculous. So Absalom had men run in front of his chariot, 50 of them, technically, to clear the streets so he wouldn't get stuck. But in reality, their job was to create a commotion so that everyone was looking by the time Absalom rode by. Absalom was in the habit of parking his chariot outside of the city walls and waiting by the main gate and inquiring of anyone who came with a complaint to lay before the king for a decision. Imagine that. One day, a man was approaching the gate, and Absalom called out, You there! What city are you from? Me. I'm from Gath. Gath! then you are an Israelite and we are brothers. Tell me, what complaint do you have that you've come to the city to get a judgment from David? And the man said, it's my brother-in-law. We, we pasture our sheep together and every night some of his men are stealing some of mine and I know he's doing it and I've told him about it, but he's either ignoring it or pretending not to know or he just doesn't care and it's driving me crazy. I've come to get a judgment from David. And Absalom just smiled and said... David is not going to hear a case as trivial as yours. Sheep? You know, once upon a time, David was a shepherd. Once upon a time, David would have cared. But that was a long time ago. And David, David's not that man anymore. He doesn't care about sheep. Now, if David made me a magistrate, if David made me a judge then surely I would rule in your favor because the law is on your side. Your claims are valid and proper, but I'm afraid you will find no justice today. 
And the man fell to the ground and began kissing Absalom's feet. And Absalom pulled him up and said, no, 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 this is, this is too much. I don't deserve these honors. I am just the son of a king. The next day, another man approached. You there, what city are you from? I'm from Tadmor. Tadmor? Then you are an Israelite. And we are brothers. Tell me, what case could you possibly have to bring before the king that would bring you all the way from Tadmor to here? And the man said, it's my neighbor. What that man has forced my wife to do, I cannot speak of it here in the open streets. And Absalom, with compassion in his eyes, and a tenderness in his hand, reached his arm around the man and said, I understand, but you will find no justice from David. Think of it. What judgment could he pass on your neighbor without shining a light on his own hypocrisy? Have you heard the story of Uriah's wife? Oh, excuse me, David's wife? But if I were made a judge, if David made me a magistrate, I would give you justice. I would give you more than justice. And you know I'm telling the truth, for surely you heard what I did to Amnon when he attacked my sister Tamar. The man was overwhelmed and fell to his knees and began kissing Absalom's feet. And Absalom pulled him up and said, No, you cannot give me honors like this. I don't deserve them, for I am only the son of a king. The word king just hanging in the air. And Absalom was so clever, so manipulative because he was always very careful to say what he would do if he were made a magistrate, if he were made a judge. But every single man that left, left daydreaming about what Absalom would do if he became a king. Absalom was at this for four years, and in that time, he won the hearts and the minds of every man in every city, in every tribe and all of Israel. The people loved him. He was the king they deserved. At this time, Absalom went to his father and said, David, give me your blessing to go to Hebron so that I may offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. For when I was still in exile in Gesher, I swore a solemn vow that if ever I returned to Jerusalem, I would go and offer sacrifices in Hebron. Hebron! Are you kidding me? Hebron is the city where David was first anointed king over Israel. And now Absalom wants to go there? It's too convenient. He's been back in the city for six years, and just now he's thinking about getting around to following through on this oath, this oath that he probably made nine years ago and has never mentioned until now. I find it suspicious, but David didn't. David loved his son. They'd been reconciled to each other, so David gave his blessing, and Absalom went with, with his men. 
as soon as he was outside the city. He gave instructions to his men to send messengers to every city in all of Israel that as soon as they heard the trumpet, they would declare that Absalom was made king in Hebron. And Absalom knew that when he attacked Jerusalem, he had to be careful or it would defend itself. And so Absalom sent invitation to 200 of David's most trusted officials and generals, inviting them to worship God with him in Hebron. The invitations looked as if it were David himself asking them to go. And of course they went. They were loyal to David. And a short time later, the trumpets rang out. And Absalom was declared king in Hebron. A messenger ran into the palace to tell David the news. David jumped off of his throne and demanded that his officials be brought together so they could come up with a plan to defend the city. David, there are no officials. What are you talking about? 200 of your closest officials, they've all joined the conspiracy. Right now, they are with Absalom in Hebron. Now, you know that's not true, and I know it's not true, but David didn't know it, and it looked bad. At this point, David knew he couldn't defend his city, so he jumped off the throne and he ordered that his entire family evacuate the palace. And it took them a while to get together, the family, the servants, anyone who was still loyal to David. First they fled the palace, then they were outside the city. It was a huge commotion and they were struggling to move. It took them forever to cross the valley of Kidron on the eastern side of the city, but eventually they did. Finally, they began to climb the Mount of Olives. And as they climbed, David looked forward and saw Zardok, the priest, accompanying the Ark of the Covenant. Zardok, what are you doing? The Ark belongs in Jerusalem. And Zardok looked back and said, if we leave the Ark in Jerusalem, Absalom will claim it. It will belong to him. The Ark belongs to you. It belongs with us. And David said, Zardok, the ark does not belong to a king. It does not belong to a man. It belongs to God. And its home is Jerusalem. If I one day again find favor with God, I will return to Jerusalem and I will see it with my own eyes again. Of this there is no doubt. But I fear that God's favor is with Absalom. I know that even now he is marching on Jerusalem according to God's will. David continued on up the Mount of Olives. He covered his head and was walking in bare feet, and everyone behind them covered their heads and kicked off their shoes when they saw him do it. After a little while, he fell to his knees and prayed. Lord, I have so many enemies. They are gnawing at my heels. They are consuming my throne and they are devouring my kingdom. They mock me and say, oh God, he will not help David anymore. But Lord, you are my shield. You are my strength. You are my rock and my citadel. When I call on you, you descend from your holy hill. Lord, I am exhausted I need to lie down. I know that when I wake up, I will be refreshed. You will refresh me as you have done so many times before. Lord, save us. 
And as for my enemies, grab them by the throat and slap them across the face. When they turn the other cheek, punch them in the mouth, knock out their teeth so they can consume and devour no more. Wow. That was a prayer. And I could never say those words. But to understand why I could never pray like that, you need to understand a little bit about me. So, a few years ago, I entered a leadership incubator here at Forest View, and as part of the day, we completed a DISC leadership-style assessment, and I learned that I am a C, which means I am conscientious. I'm contemplative. Here's a quick summary from the website. People with the C style place a high priority on quality, competency, and accuracy. Because they want to ensure superior results, they tend to analyze options rationally and separate emotions from facts. Being a C means that I am happy to make a decision, but I am incapable of acting until I know it's the right one. I found this website that lists a bunch of traits that C's may have, and when I read this list, I realize that I can replace every they may with Matthew always. <laughs> Matthew always takes extra time to make an informed choice. Matthew always reviews your work and gives specific feedback with a detached air. <laughs> Matthew always focuses on facts and ignores social niceties. Which means, according to the DISC website, I'm what's called a high C, or a, or a capital C, or as Diana would call me, such a C. <laughs> and here's an example of how being a C impacts my daily life. We spent the first week of summer at Diana's family cottage, and every time we visit, my mother-in-law leaves a list of jobs on the fridge. I spend the mornings puttering around on the chores and then try to spend the afternoon on vacation. This year, the list only had seven items. Item number four was paint the screen doors white. Now for a D, this job would be simple. Ds are doers. Five doors? No problem. Give them a can of paint, a brush, 90 minutes, the job is done. But as soon as I saw this door, I immediately thought, hmm, am I going to need a 60 or a 120 grit sandpaper to sand off the flaking paint? Silly Matthew. <laughs> You're going to need to use a 60 and then a 120 to do the job properly. And my next thought was, how am I going to paint the trim of the window frame without getting any white on the screen? Silly Matthew. No one could paint a line that finely. You need to take off the round trim and paint it separately. Then I looked closely at the screen. <laughs> there was already paint everywhere. And now I had a real crisis, because as a C, I am motivated by two things. First, a compulsion to do things properly. 
And second, a fear that someone else will see a job done improperly and assume I'm the one responsible for it. Which means now I need to drive into town to buy a new screen. And because I'm a C, I already know that I'm going to spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, at the back of home hardware doing a cost-benefit analysis of fiberglass versus aluminum. And all of these realizations flew through my mind in the 10 seconds it took me to approach and open the door. And then I saw this. <laughs> and it stopped me cold. Because whoever was responsible for this abomination <laughs> was not a C. A C would never use latex over oil paint. A C would never use a Red Robertson and a green Phillips screw to install a door handle. And a C would never paint over a brass fixture. Well, maybe we would, right? Styles change, but a C would never paint it black without priming it first. And then this. I was exasperated. Who paints over hinges instead of taking the door off? That was the question I screamed across the room to Diana. Who does this? And she chastised me. Don't be so judgmental, to which I gave my standard reply. I am not being judgmental. I just have standards. <laughs> and so it took four days. But I replaced the screen. Well, each coat needs to dry for a full day before you put the second coat on. And I painted the door, and I fixed the handle properly. And at this point, you may be thinking, huh, that looks really good. I wish I married a C. No, you don't. <laughs> because being a C has liabilities. Being a C means that I've never been ready to order the first time a server came to our table. Being a C means I cannot go into a grocery store for less than 70 minutes. Being a C means I have a habit of ruining family game night by having the audacity to check the rules. Being a C also makes me susceptible to a particular type of gluttony identified by C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters. And here, he's talking about the mother in the book. This woman is what may be called the all-I-want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made, or an egg properly boiled, or a slice of bread properly toasted but she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact. Now, in the case of her son, males are best turned into gluttons with the help of their vanity. They ought to be made to think themselves very knowing about food, to pride themselves on having found the only restaurant in town where steaks are properly cooked. I'm not judgmental. I just have standards. 
Now, the most relevant liability in the context of this morning in Psalm 3 is that being a C has been handcuffing my prayer life. And I only figured this out after I started preparing today's message. I grew up in a different church tradition. Each week, to end the pastoral prayer, the entire congregation would recite the prayer that Jesus taught us because it was his template for communicating with God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Somewhere along the line, my mind, my temperament, my personality confused Jesus' instructions. Jesus instructs me to pray that God's will be done. You already know that I'm incapable of doing something unless I know I'm doing it properly. Which means I find myself incapable of praying for something unless I know it is God's will. Which is ridiculous. And it's paralyzing. If we have ever been in a small group and you've shared a prayer request, there's a good chance I haven't followed through. Now, if you've asked me to pray for a sister who's lost her faith, if you've asked me to pray that she will know God's peace again in the midst of her pain, of course I've prayed for that. Clearly, God wants to bring peace and healing. But if you've had a job interview and asked me to pray that you get hired, is that God's will? I don't know. Does God care where you work? Surely we can witness and model love wherever we are. And hold on, are you asking me to pray for that, that you find a job or get this job? And do you want this job or do you need this job? And what about Psalm 130 and waiting on the Lord? Maybe this is supposed to be your time of waiting. And what if getting this job distracts you from the thing you're supposed to be waiting for? And how far away is this job? Is there another job with a shorter commute? Because we're supposed to be stewards of the earth, right? Oh, go train. Okay. But, but what if there's someone better for this job? What if praying for you undermines them? Wait. Matthew, is this really what happens in your mind when you're sitting on a couch in someone's living room and they share a prayer request? Yes. Every single time. But what do you expect from a guy that needs three days and four apps to book a hotel room? If I spend that much time contemplating something that doesn't matter, how much more time will I spend contemplating something that does? And again, somewhere along the line, my mind, my temperament, my personality confused Jesus' instruction, which means I find myself unable to pray for something unless I know it is God's will, which is ridiculous, and it's paralyzing. I spend most of my life wrestling with what to pray and very little time actually praying it. And I know that Richard Foster would tell me that what I'm doing is a form of prayer, but that feels like a convenient cop-out. And so this is why 
I could never pray like David does in Psalm 3. He seems to pray before thinking. My God, save me. Strike all my enemies in the cheek and break the teeth of sinful people. At this point, David thinks he has lost God's favor. David assumes that Absalom will replace him as king according to God's will, which means in Psalm 3, David isn't praying that God's will be done. David is praying that God's will won't be done. And actually, he isn't even thinking about God's will. He's just telling God what he wants. And when I first read this, I struggled with it. The same way I struggled with seeing a painted door hinge. But in the book of Samuel, and in the book of Acts, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And we know that scripture is true. And because I wasn't clear in the past, and it's caused the Forest View family pain and confusion, let me be clear now. Scripture is true. If I'm struggling when I read it, then I'm the one that needs to adjust my understanding. So I studied Psalm 3 and found that it is actually a template for prayer. So let's take a closer look at the prayer that David taught us. Psalm 3 is eight verses long, and it's broken up into four distinct sections. And in each section, David changes the focus of his prayer. So as we go through the sections... I'll summarize them, and then I'll read the entire thing at the very end once we've finished. And if you've got one of the cards around on the seat that look like this, then you'll find it on the inside. And if you don't have a card, it'll be up on the screen. In section one, David explains this is what's happening. This is my situation, this is, why, this is where I find myself, this is why I'm praying. Simply, so many people are rising up against me. Why am I praying? Here it is, Lord. This is why I thought to pray right now. In section two, he says, Lord, you are like a shield that keeps me safe. In section two, David says, this is what I know about you. Next. I lie down to sleep, I wake up again because the Lord takes care of me. In section three, David says, this is what I'm going to do. And I really like the way he says it. It's a declaration. So often when we pray, we find a way to make our actions conditional. All right, Lord, if you, then I. This actually reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up to Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't say to God, we will honor your commands if you promise to save us. No. They said, the God we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace, but even if he does not, 
We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is what I'm going to do. One more note about this section. This line is translated a bunch of different ways. I lie down and sleep, I wake up again. I can lie down to sleep, I will wake up again. I rested and slept, I awoke. Present, future, past. So which is it? I get the sense that in his present state, David has a confidence, a hope for the future, because he remembers God's faithfulness in the past. So, present, future, or past? Yes. Finally, section four. Lord, rise up, break the teeth of sinful people. In section four, David says, this is what I want you to do. And that's the whole prayer. This is what's happening. This is what I know about you. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I want you to do. It is a great template because it is so simple. And it's versatile because you can use it in any order. Now, as a C, how do I reconcile Jesus' command that God's will be done with a prayer that tells God, this is my will, do it? It's hard, but I have two thoughts. First, I'm starting to realize that when I pray, thy will be done, I'm really asking God to align my will to his, to reconcile my wants with his desires. But if my heart has a hope of moving into alignment with God's, I need to at least be honest about where I'm starting from. And if you want to be reconciled to God's will, you need to start by confessing the truth. A second thought. Does anyone remember, it's been a while since I've had a classroom, does anybody remember where David is when he makes this prayer? Yes, he is on the Mount of Olives, fleeing Jerusalem. Does anyone recall another famous prayer that happens on the Mount of Olives? Yes, on the last night, Jesus... On the night that Jesus is captured, he prays in Gethsemane, which is on the foot of the Mount of Olives. In Mark, Jesus announces that his soul is full of sorrow and then says, all things are possible for you. Take this cup, not what I will, but what you will. The most powerful prayer in the Bible is only four phrases long. This is what is happening. My heart is full of sorrow. This is what I know about you. You can do anything. This is what I want you to do. Take this cup. This is what I'm going to do. Your will.
I wonder if Jesus found the strength to meet Judas and turn himself over to Caiaphas when he admitted to God that he didn't want to. Is this the moment when Christ's will became aligned with God's? The moment when he confessed the truth? One last observation about Psalm 3. If you're reading it on the cards or in your own Bible, you notice that there's this word selah to the side a couple times in italics. And I've previously admitted that I often skip anything in italics. But the word selah is an important word for us this morning. The word selah is part of the psalm. It isn't added by the editors. It isn't commentary. But it's complicated because we don't actually know what selah means or why it's here. One possibility is that Selah is a musical notation of sorts, giving instruction on how the psalm is to be sung. Some translate Selah as so be it, in the same way that we might say amen. Another possibility is that Selah serves a liturgical purpose. The thought is that when the psalm was read to a congregation, Selah was an instruction to pause so the people could respond. And this is how I'm going to interpret Selah as we read Psalm 3 together now. We already know I have a habit of thinking about prayer more than actually doing it, and I don't want to fall into the trap of talking about prayer for 30 minutes without actually praying. So, as we read through Psalm 3 one last time, I'm going to pause at that, these three points for a full minute to give you space to respond. First, we'll read what's happening to David, and then we can have a chance to tell God what's happening to us. And if you want to fill out the cards as you go, by all means, if you want to pray in the way you are comfortable, of course, um, but let's read it together. Lord, I have so many enemies. So many people are rising up against me. Many are saying about me, God will not save him. Selah. Lord, you are like a shield that keeps me safe. You bring me honor. You help me win the battle. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Selah.
I lie down to sleep and I wake up again because the Lord takes care of me. I won't be afraid, even though tens of thousands attack me on every side. Lord, rise up. My God, save me. Strike all my enemies in the cheek. Break the teeth of sinful people. Lord, you are the one who saves. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Amen.